Welcome to the first episode in our special podcast series. Tango Alpha Lima remembers 9-11. For the next four weeks, we'll pause from our regular schedule to release special guest episodes each weekday. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes and please share these stories with others. We want you to share because our guests have some incredible stories. Some are firsthand accounts from folks who were in key locations on the day of the attacks. Others share how their personal 9-11 experience has inspired them in meaningful ways. America pledged 20 years ago to never forget. So we present these snapshots to help us all remember. So that will kick off the series with the American Legion's 9-11 story. On September 11, 2001, newly elected National Commander Rick Santos was on Capitol Hill poised to brief Congress on the American Legion's priorities for the coming legislative year. Then the first plane hit the tower in New York and the whole world changed. When we come back, we'll be joined by past National Commander Rich Santos to share his memories of that moment and the months that followed as he represented the nation's largest veteran service organization during a time of national crisis. On September 11th, 2001, our American way of life was attacked. Everyone remembers where they were that day how their lives changed from that moment on. The American Legion is committed to honoring the memories of those we lost on 9-11 and in the global war on terrorism that followed. As part of that commitment, the American Legion Tango Alpha Lima podcast presents a special series, 9-11-2020. 20 episodes in the 20 days leading up to the 20th anniversary of the attacks that changed the world. Each of the 20 guests delivers a unique first-hand perspective on 9-11 and our nation's response. Here is one of those remarkable stories. All right, we're joined now by Commander Santos. Commander, good to see you. Uh, haven't uh, haven't seen you since I think last year's spring meetings. Yes. So it's been a while since any of us were in the same room together, I guess. Uh, but today we're going to talk to you about your experience uh, 9-11. And I, I know largely what happened since I was there with you that day and uh was walking around, so I saw the the aftermath as well. But uh, for those who don't know, can you talk about what your experiences were that morning and uh, and actually the days leading up to it as well? We were in Washington D.C. for the Washington Conference and the uh, Commander's testimony before the joint sessions of the uh, Veterans Committees, and uh, we uh, we had practiced for it hardly, sternly, extensively with staff and well prepared. And we went to the, uh, the Capitol that day to, uh, to make our testimony, scheduled for 10 a.m. Uh, Senator, uh, not Senator, Representative Steny Hoyer was going to be the person to introduce me. And it was ironic, uh, Steny and I were standing in the room for the testimony to be done. And uh, a lot of flurry all of a sudden was created. And uh, the Capitol Police would come by and talk to Mr. Hoyer, and he would come back to me and we were we getting ready just ready to go with it and all of a sudden it was a no-show we had uh, we were requested to leave the capitol grounds that was myself staff and all those that were there to uh, witness the testimony and that's how that day was started we were made aware of the airplane striking the um, twin towers because uh, we had a breakfast at nine o'clock in the capitol area and they had a TV monitor, which showed us that planes had, uh, well, a plane had hit the uh, Twin Towers. And uh, 
they thought it was maybe an accident, no, nothing intentional. But time we left our breakfast till we got to the 10, 10 a.m. in the testimonial room, of course, it was known of, of the two planes in the towers and the plane that hit the Pentagon because uh, we heard that large boom even inside. Uh, we just took it for granted that was a sonic boom by a jet. We didn't, uh, we weren't sure uh, of anything else, but that's what it sounded like to us. So that prepared us for at 10, 10 a.m. to uh, evacuate the Capitol and walk back to the hotel, the Hyatt Regions Hotel, which is, I guess, about a half a mile. And uh, we gathered our troops, you may say, and every since I'm from the area, as you know, I knew how to walk it without any interference. And uh, uh, it looked like a bunch of lemmings going over the cliff because everyone was following the first person down the sidewalk, across the crosswalk, over. It was quite unique to see the line behind you, you know, a couple hundred people following you back to the hotel on, on a day like this. And it was quite unique. Yeah, I was with uh, Bill Christofferson from the state of Utah and we were meeting with Senator Hatch when the first plane, we were in his waiting room when the first plane hit. And, we thought at the time, what a horrible tragedy, assuming yes. that it had been an accident. We got into our meeting with Senator Hatch and Secret Service showed up because he was the ranking member uh, in the Senate at the time. And they picked him up and, and carried him out. And we were, Mr. Christopherson and I were kind of like, what, what's going on? And we came out and everyone was fleeing the Senate building. We still really didn't know what was going on, but we said, let's go back to the Let's hear Commander Santos give his testimony. When we came behind the building on the Supreme Court side, you guys were probably on the other side of the building going that way. But the, the thing I'll never forget was that they had called it into the Capitol that that Shanksville plane was headed towards the Capitol building. And yes. people were fleeing in all directions. But can you describe some of the mayhem that was going on? Yes. Yeah, so when I was standing there with uh, Representative Hoyer, of course, the Capitol Police come up and said, uh, Representative Hoyer? You come this way, Commander Santos, you take all your troops, you go that way, immediately evacuate the area and the grounds and go back to the hotel. And that's when with staff, we gathered everyone because we're in different rooms and uh, got everyone outside. And uh, once everyone's outside and we've gathered together, you may say, in a group, because many people out of state have no idea where they're going to in Washington, D.C. on a walk, in a cab, yes, but walking, you know, living in Greenbelt, 14, maybe eight miles away by how the crow flies, and work in the city for 30 years, uh, it we knew how to get back quick. And on the way back, we would hear these sonic booms and everyone would kind of, you know, flinch or take a duck, you know, thinking maybe something was happening overhead, but the, the jets were responding from Langley to get into Washington, D.C. in case of that uh, flight coming in from the West uh, made it. And, uh, and we could see smoke coming from the Pentagon area. Uh, we were not aware yet that the Pentagon was hit. We only saw the smoke. Right. And it was ironic, time we got back to the hotel, uh, my youngest son, who's a firefighter, a volunteer firefighter in Maryland, they had called all the units they could possibly could from the area to the Pentagon to fight the fire. So I was unaware that my son uh, was over there at the time. So it's quite unique, but walking back, everyone was very gun shy in a sense, because when you hear the sonic boom again, they duck, you know, it's just a, a, a reaction, but it was calm, serene. Uh, it was uh, a surreal scenario. It was, it, it was quiet, but there was noise mm -hmm. and everyone was talking to keep their mind busy off of it. 
And uh, by the time we got back and uh, staff, as you know, had more information for us on what was occurring. And um, well, so we got back to the hotel, we had an assembly, we called everyone down into the main meeting room and gave them a best overview as we can. And luckily, again, living in the area, I, I told them every bridge up and down the Potomac, you know, from down at uh, all the way down towards La Plata, all the way up to Western Maryland, up to uh, uh, five Westies want to go. These bridges are going to be packed. Yep. If you're going to try to leave now, good luck. But don't use the bridges. If you can get out on the highways going west or north, yes. But if you're going to try to cross the 14th Street Bridge, uh, the Legion Bridge up on, on 495 or Woodrow Wilson Bridge, just forget it because everyone else in there is going home trying to evacuate. That was quite, you know, they, they couldn't understand the, the, the road set up in Washington, D.C., which Ashley knows immensely is, is quite complicated, not very efficient, and very subject to log jams. Well, and there was, there was a lot of misinformation that was going out, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was, there had been rumors that a bomb had hit the State Department, uh, and so they had shut down sort of the Foggy Bottom area. And uh, it was I I still remember standing in the hotel and they had the, the bar sort of downstairs. It's a wide open area and there were TVs across the top. And I remember standing in the back looking around at all the Legionnaires who were just watching it. But I remember comparing the way the Legionnaires responded to what was going on, as opposed to everyone else in the hotel who everyone was sort of panicking. We were I think the the Legion people were kind of like you know, taking it a little better in, in stride. And, and I, I remember they had said, yeah, don't use the bridges. Well, I had to get to Leesburg, Virginia, where my National Guard Armory was. And I started walking. And I made it to the Key Bridge when Commander Smith picked me up and drove me the rest of the way. So, but uh, why don't we start with you, Jeff? Zip. There All right. you go. Uh, <laughs> yep, my voice box still works. So, Commander, we've never met. Uh, but I, hopefully this year at the National Convention, maybe we, we, we can. I wanted to about, it's a pretty vague question because I was thousands of miles away and I know that the, the impact was great on the people that were near and around me, but to be there. I'm, I'm curious about the, the intensity level of the feelings that people had and also the angst of, because you're there, like what's next? And did, did people constantly just feel in danger kind of thing? So if you can talk just about the intensity of the feelings that you and people around you have. In my observations, I could see that the American Legionnaires, I agree with the Mark, were taking this a little more subtle way. I think maybe because of your previous training when this military service, you didn't panic that easy. That could have been a possibility, but, uh, our people were, I think all of us were, we didn't realize how serious the situation was at the time. And I think that was probably good because if they felt the, the, the how bad it really was right away, it might've been a little bit different, might've been more catastrophic. But, uh, but just with the, inf finally with this false information being filtered out and getting really what was happening, uh, it was easier to, relay that information to them, make our group understand what was happening, what their next action should be. 
And we recommended that they uh, try to make it home in groups. For instance, if you had three or four people going to Ohio and you and you got one person trying to make it back to Western Pennsylvania, group together, rent a car, make your way home. You're going to have to work together to get yourselves home because there's nothing the American Legion can do. The airlines are closed, bus lines are closed. All of the rental cars were just about gone within hours. So getting themselves home was was a challenge. Uh, what the American Legion did in the hotel was to uh, speak with them and make sure they reduced the rates for people who could not get home. Jeff, people from California. The, one of the last persons to leave was the service officer from California. And that was a week later. Uh, I was still there as of the following Monday. So there are six days thereafter. And what we did, the American Legion did to make our people feel comfortable home and, uh, and get updates twice a day in the national commander's room uh, we would have a meeting and we would give them updates there uh, we would serve them you know some hors d'oeuvres beverage whatever it is just to get the camaraderie together to keep them calm and let them know what's really transpired and they were a lot of people were very very nervous jeff very nervous you could see it in their faces tense because uh my wife and kids are home i'm here i'm here in washington dc you know, my family's in uh, Tucson, Arizona, or I'm in uh, Wichita, Kansas, or Spokane, Washington. All these people so far away were really concerned, uh, was this going to spread to other cities uh, where their families being subject to uh, maybe this type of uh, carnage? So it, it was quite unique uh, in its sense. It's a one of once in a lifetime. I really felt like I was surviving December 7, 1941 all over. And, and how the reaction reaction was and in, 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 in the scenario. That's how I felt. Thank you for that. Ashley, you are up. Commander, so I want to dive in a little bit. You mentioned that your son volunteer firefighter and he was responding. And I'm just curious about the conversations that you and him had regarding your experiences that day. You know, how, I mean, were you able to, you know, communicate with him? Obviously, you're, you know, six days past, you're still at the hotel, we're trying to, you know, remain calm and compassionate and, you know, on alert. Um, how are you feeling, you know, as a, as a father who has someone who is a first responder, you know, there on the ground and, you know, just kind of explain a little bit more about you, that relationship and some of the experiences that your son had as well? Most information I, I received about my son's activity in those days or on the same day came through my wife. Uh, my wife took over the communication with my son where I could direct my energies to the Allegiant. But uh, it was very surprising when I found out that he was over there and in an active mode of uh, rescue, uh, extinguishing fires and et cetera. Uh, I think everyone feels you don't mind putting yourself in peril but you don't want to see your family in peril or your best friend in peril. Mm -hmm. And just like in the service, you try to take care of the person that's next to you or around you. And in this instance, there wasn't anything I could do except maybe give him moral support from three miles away. And, uh, and I'm sure he was probably in the same light looking in his job at a job at the time. I don't want to say job, but his task at the time, I think he was overwhelmed with what he had to do before him 
I don't think he was thinking of dad or his family right away because again, he was in the same scenario, but just in a different place. Yeah. It was unique. And, uh, and I didn't know he was over there until late that evening when my wife had talked to him and, and he had called from the scene. Of course, as you know, mobile phones were jammed. So communications by telephone was very hard to do for several days thereafter. So communicating with family, et cetera, was difficult at the time. And that put a lot of people in, I'm going to use California so far away, they couldn't call, uh, they couldn't do anything. And uh, again, I'm using people who are quite far away. I was close, eight miles. I had a big advantage. People from Virginia had a big advantage. But those far away just it had to be tough on them, tougher on them than anybody else. Well, well, um, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's heavy and it's, it's really about, you know, the, the perspective, like everyone has experienced, you know, the, uh, September 11th attacks, you know, in a different place. And for you to just be able to say, I was three, eight miles away, you know, you could hear the sonic boom, knowing that you have a son who's responding, not learning until later. And then also, of course, bearing the responsibilities of, of you know, donning the national, being the national commander, past national commander, right? So it's a lot. And, um, you know, were there, was there a time that you just, you just kind of had that moment of tranquility and like, it, everything just kind of hits you, right? Like you talk about this surreal, everything's happening, it's kind of odd, but like, was there like one defining moment where everything just felt like a freeze frame? That didn't set in until several days later, because I think Mark will agree. We were doing special broadcasts each each day, specifically with the U.S. Capitol is right outside our window, so we had a good background, and try to share what was happening and what we were doing and, and et cetera. We were so busy attending to distribute information as best we could, but our main attention was taking care of the legionnaires and their families that were in the hotel trying to help them plan to get themselves out of Washington, D.C., on the road somewhere to get home to their families. That was beyond the uh, um, releases that we were doing. We concentrated on that more than anything else. And I think that camaraderie within the American Legion of the National Commander and staff showing the way that we are concerned about everyone that can't get home. Uh, we're going to help you the best way we can. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to take care of you while you're here. We're going to have daily releases, as I said, daily meetings. And uh, it, it, it didn't set into several days later when, the, when, when all this kind of abated a little bit, that when you sat down with no one around, then it kind of hit you. Say, this is, this, is, this is much worse than you ever thought it was in your comments or in your efforts with the with outsiders or with the legionnaires. It didn't set into several days later, actually. Really didn't. Yeah. yeah before before Let's we send see. it back to Mark to wrap up, I, I'm just curious because we're getting your we're getting your uh, mood and, and things happening. But I'm just wondering how did your time as national commander change that day? Did the job change <laughs> that day? The scope, the task, the speeches, the interaction, the travel, it all took a 90, took a 180 degree turn. 
a lot of our uh, meetings, especially with military, was canceled, of course, due to force protection on the bases. Um, getting anywhere was tough because the airlines had shut down. And of course, you know, the airlines don't open up in one day. So it took them several weeks to get their schedule back and going. Uh, we attempted to communicate with the post from a remote aspect. We didn't have Zoom. We didn't have Team. We didn't have those lines available to us. The most, the best way we could do was mobile telephone if the lines were clear. Which they generally weren't. Weren't, that's correct. They were just overwhelmed. So as the national commander, uh, a, the, the normal schedule, the normal things that a national commander did was changed for that entire year. Many things were uh, canceled or postponed. Uh, again, uh, not giving the testimony uh, was a was probably the biggest. Uh, I'm trying to think the right word. Downfall or something. It was just that was the biggest displeasure. I I just felt. Gosh darn, I never got to do that. And I've watched so many commanders do it before and thereafter. And it's just one guy in the middle, you know, for 90 years. And then there's another 20 in the after. And there's only one in the middle that never got to do it. And we never got to present our issues to Congress that way. It was very difficult thereafter to do anything with Congress because national security was the issue. Veterans issues were second nature. Second nature. So whatever we're trying to do wasn't taking any effect. Yeah, you had only been elected commander, for folks who don't know, uh, like, what, three weeks earlier or something of that nature. And so you came out of convention, we we studied up, we got everything ready to go on the testimony, and then, boom, it turns out you're a wartime commander, basically. Uh, and, you know, the, the biggest thing for, at least for me, with 9-11 and what happened with us was, there was so much confusement going on, like from the media on up. Nobody knew who did it. Nobody knew if it was over. Nobody knew if there were bombs going off all around D.C. And when we say we were at our hotel, our hotel was rock pitching distance from, from the Capitol. It's not like we were staying all the way across town. I mean, you can literally see the Capitol building from almost all of our hotel rooms. And with the phones down, uh, it, it was crazy. It was a crazy time, but it, you're right. Like I still remember people talking about how they were, they had rented a car, thankfully, and they had a car and they were driving to like Kansas and they were shipped. They were taking people in the car that were going to Ohio or Tennessee, like places that don't necessarily go on the route, but it, it was it was good to sort of be a cohort that the Legion was all together. But even as we were struggling to get out of Washington, DC, our Legion posts were already in action uh, down at ground zero in particular. I know that, uh, that uh, there were posts that were handing out water and everything else. So looking back on it now, I, I couldn't be prouder of the group of people we were with and how it got handled on that. End. But it was, it was a crazy time. There was one story real quick I'll share with you. It's a human story. I received a call from a young lady from Michigan. She was trying to find her father that was attending the uh, sessions. And I asked her, well, who is your dad? 
He says, my dad is Tom Cadmus, who mm-hmm. was, followed me three, four years later as national commander. He says, I'm surprised, commander, that you even answered my call. You didn't know who I was. I says, uh, I'll find out where your dad's at. I'll call you back with that information and let you know that he's okay. And after I hung up with the young lady, uh, I, I put out my feelers and, and, and we finally found out that Tom had been able to hitch a ride with people from Michigan and Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So he had already left and he was on his way home. And I called uh, his daughter back and she was very grateful knowing her dad was okay. And her mm-hmm. dad was on the way home. So I think that was a very fitting story how the American Legion works together, take care of your own and let the family know that you're doing well. It's a very good human story. With Commander, Commander Cadmus, also not the most technologically apt human <laughs> being I've ever met. So it's very unlikely he had a phone that was uh, state of the art even at the time. If he did have a cell phone, it was probably one of those big like cell block ones that you had to plug in in your car and everything but more but, like a world war world war yeah he probably had to had to crank it mr mr cadmus was many things a technological expert he was not but commander santos thank you so much for joining it we really appreciate you being here and and sharing it and this is going to be part of our ongoing series about 9-11 i think it's appropriate that uh we we start at least uh interviewing with you and uh and getting the the ground's eye view from Washington, D.C. So, Commander, again, thank you very much. Our pleasure, and thank you much to all of you.